Hello, and welcome to the Black History Month Cambridge Stronger special episode. I'm Amy Weber, CEO of Cambridge and host of Cambridge Stronger, a podcast where culture counts and values matter most. In recognition of Black History Month, we've teamed up with our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee to offer a special episode of Cambridge Stronger. We believe building a diverse and inclusive work environment is more important than ever, particularly in the financial services industry. We hope we can help provide awareness around diversity in our industry and discuss many ways we can all help create a more inclusive environment. With that, I'd like to welcome our guest, Judy Griffin of Griffin Financial Services Group. We are honored to have Judy as a member of our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council here at Cambridge, and we'll talk more about that later. Welcome to the show, Judy. Thank you, Amy. So good to see you and hear you. I can't wait for the audience to hear your story. My very first favorite question is always about the journey into the industry. I've read that you were once a personal finance instructor at Washington University in St. Louis. So I presume that will be a part of your story that you're going to share with us. So please tell us how you got here. Okay. First, I want to say thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And also thank you because of your being proactive in the DEI arena. And I think that is so important as we go forward, as we see what's happening in our country. I mean, if you go to any major city and you walk down the street, people don't look like each other. You know, they're all different. So I want to commend you on being proactive and also, you know, your success in the Women's Initiative. You've done a great job with that program. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, you're very welcome. I have a lot of fun doing it. I do believe in this uh, cause and I'm glad that the industry as a whole woke up. Unfortunately, maybe a little late or a lot late as the case may be, but either way. It's coming. So my journey, this is my um, story I always start with. This is why I got into education. I taught the uh, personal finance class. Well, when my introduction to investing, and let me set the stage, I was working for IBM. I was 24 years old and I didn't have any student loans. My parents had paid for me to go to college. I walked into a large wire house and I talked to the receptionist. I said, I want to get started in investing and I'd like to speak to someone. And so she said, okay. And so she put me in this conference room with this huge conference table. She asked me, did I want any coffee? And I didn't even really drink coffee then, but I felt so special. I was like, sure. Yes. You know? So anyway, a, uh, she sent an advisor in. And he came in and he said, how can I help you? And I said, well, you know, I want to get started in investing. I know nothing about it. I I just know I want to start. And I have, he said, well, how much are you looking at spending? I said, well, maybe investing about $50 a month or whatever. He said, okay, I'll be right back. He left the room and he came back and he brought a brochure and he flicked across the table the brochure at me and he said here little honey when you get some money call me and um we can talk about investing that is awful but is there's so, so many stories like that yes right? yes so that was his advice to me how did you and respond i was just <laughs> i just said oh okay but you know just like anybody else a hundred things were running through my mind because i felt like I was being ignored. I felt like, what is the number? When do I come back? And how much money do I have to have to come back? You know, and I didn't know if he was treating me like that because I was a woman 
or if he was treating me like that because I was a black woman. I just didn't really know. So needless to say, I never went back into a brokerage firm until my brother went to work for one. And I had never been back in since then because I was intimidated, you know. So then we fast forward a few years. I got married. I got divorced. And then I started dating and realized that the rescue fantasy that we see on Hallmark wasn't going to happen. So nobody was coming to rescue me. I had to figure this out on my own. And so I've been in the industry 22 years. And the reason I got in this industry, because I wanted to financially empower people. I wanted people to know what questions to ask, how to get started. So we spend a lot of our time with our clients educating them. Because we want them to know if something happens and we're not here tomorrow, why we did, why we made the, some of the decisions and what their plan is going forward. So you use your education background, I suspect, almost every day or in, multiple times every day in, in your interactions oh, with your clients. Absolutely. absolutely. How long was it? Um, you said that you didn't go back to do, well, you didn't go back to a brokerage firm. I guess I assumed that was, that meant that you didn't invest at least with someone else, but how long was that period of time? Oh, probably. I was with IBM for 10 years. So I don't think I went back until I left um, and had to roll over my 401k. Think about how many clients are in that position. There just yeah, aren't yeah. enough of us, I don't think yet, um, to, to solve it entirely. But that's a, that's a long time that you could have been benefiting. Absolutely. 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 Well, you, then you founded Griffin Financial Services Group in 2010. Mm -hmm. You leveraged the skills that you've learned as partially you were just sharing with us. Talk about how it felt and what you went through to become a business owner in the independent space on your own. Okay. Well, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 15 years old. And previous to this career, I owned a children's bookstore and I also owned a catalog business. We sold black products via catalog, black dolls, black cards before you could buy them at the stores. And so I had a business partner and we set them up and we would ran a catalog business. So being an entrepreneur, being in business for yourself was not new. I have a background, I started my career with A.G. Edwards, and then I went to Merrill Lynch, and then I had a short stand at MetLife. So I wanted to learn the insurance business, the wirehouse, and the regional business. So those different atmospheres, plus my own experience, really helped prepare me to be in the independent space. Um, it, it just helped create an, an understanding of what was needed. And do you leverage that knowledge now with your clients? I have to believe that some of your clients have already worked with one of those other segments of the industry before they come to you. Knowing what goes on inside those environments, you can explain to your clients why you're different. Right. And how does that work? And so while we're, why we are different is, number one, because of my first experience of people not taking time to explain to people. We have quite a few young career, young, high net worth career people. Um, and we always take the time to help them anticipate the next 
question and anticipate the next financial decision that they'll have to make. So we are constantly, even with our older clients and younger clients, we really want to anticipate before. We don't want them to be blindsided if we can help it. So if we know certain things that'll come up in certain times in their life, um, different life events, life decisions, and financial decisions, we try to anticipate those and plan for those. And you use the word we. What does your team look like? I have um, three people. I have uh, an executive assistant. I have an office manager. And then we have what we called a comfort concierge. And she is uh, the one that we say she takes care of the clients and prays for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great job. Yeah, she likes it. (laughs) I bet she does. Oh, that's fantastic. So it sounds like you've got a really strong team there. Are there different things that you do depending on the generational aspects of the clients? Do you have a different model or does everybody go through the same process? No, different model because uh, younger people, most of my young professionals, most of them have not bought houses yet. So they're in the process of saving for a house. So their path is a little bit different than what we would put on somebody that's saving for retirement or someone that's in retirement and looking for distribution for income from retirement. So we have different paths that we send people on. We try to customize it, but we have certain decisions that we know that they're going to have to make depending on their age. And so we try to prepare them based on that. That makes sense. As I mentioned earlier, you serve on our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Advisory Council, which I want to thank you for. You've been such a strong contributor since we started that journey. Would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about how you became involved with the council and why that work and time investment is important to you? Well, because of my experiences, And uh, when the DEI uh, opportunity came along, I figured I could either sit back and complain and share my story with everybody, or I could use my voice for good. So what I decided to do is I decided to use my voice for good. When we look at the American population, 13% are African-Americans. Merrill Lynch hired a research firm And they conducted a study, and I'm just going to read this to you. It said that between 2015 and 2020, that there had been an increase of African-Americans with a household of 125,000 plus of about 65%. So that's really, yeah, that's really a big number. So there were a lot of people that I know that are going, had gone into places and they were just a number, you know, they didn't have a $10 million account or they, so I, it was important to me because, you know, Cambridge is where I've been and I've landed and I, I'm stuck here. I'm not stuck here, but I want to be here, you know, forever. Right. <laughs> I want to retire from here. Let me put it that way. And um, it was important to me that we are addressing all the needs of our, of the community around us and, you know, it, everywhere, not just in St. Louis, but in Iowa, every, you know, that we're, ahead of the game and that we're around for a long time. And part of being around for a long time is that we are able to address these different communities. And one of the studies they are questions that they ask. They ask about building trust and, you know, building trust. How would an institution build trust with you? And 47 of the African-Americans said being welcoming and inclusive. 
And that just, to me, goes back to how I felt that day I was in that wirehouse. And he, first of all, called me little honey. And then second, you know, threw the brochure at me. But, you know, to best serve a community, you've got to understand their experiences. You've got to understand their motivation and their goals. And there are certain things that we do understand, you know, um, Sometimes what you'll see in an African-American community and many minority communities is we help other family members. So you're not, so we have to plan for that. We have to anticipate that or say, okay, we will do this up to a certain point, but after that, we can no longer help that child or whatever, or help that sister or help that brother. So, you know, there's some nuances within communities that you, that people need to understand to serve them, to best serve them. What would you say is one of the most rewarding initiatives that you've worked on since you've become a part of the committee? I, my hot button was the internship program. The internship program, and then we're also doing a um, a calendar of what of what um, let's see, uh, qualifications that we have for different positions, and so it's really interesting because uh, you know again. This is why diversity is so important, because when you bring people into a room and everybody has the same background, everybody thinks the same. OK, but when you bring people from different backgrounds in together to have a conversation, problems get solved so much faster. And, and so with so many different points of view. And so one of the initiatives is we looked at the internship program because that's just huge. And we talked about different ways that we could do it or implement the program without necessarily bringing people to Iowa or where do we go look for minorities to be part of this program. So we tossed around different ideas. When we looked at the qualifications and like a quick glance at a glance spreadsheet of what the positions were and just some qualifications behind those positions, one of the things we talked about was education. And everybody, you know, you know, people always looked at, oh, finance and marketing, but I know people that were education majors that do very well in this field. I know people that don't have degrees that have done very well in this field. So, you know, sometimes when we all are, are alike or look alike or think alike or whatever, we just go down one path. And, you know, I, I'm just enjoying the diversity that we have on our teams and the input and people aren't afraid to speak. You know, they're saying, okay, look, this is a problem. Well, when you say it like this, it means this because so many times we don't even know, I always say this in our meetings, we don't even know when we're insulting somebody. It's very true. I was a part of that conversation after maybe the first or second draft. And I thought it was really interesting how people were sharing their personal experiences and being so inclusive as it related to trying to understand other people's perspectives. It was a, a really rewarding experience just to watch it happen. And I also, mm -hmm. congratulations, I, I think that is a really important initiative that the committee worked on as well. And I saw the final product potentially go through final approval. So we're about to get to work now that all the work has been done. And uh, that's really exciting. Yes. I think it is a really harmonious you know, one of the pillars of success for Cambridge overall, even though we may not have for the last 40 years specifically thought about DE&I formally 
as we created our culture and our core values was our flexibility and the diversity of thought. So I've Mm -hmm. always said my executive team, for instance, they're all highly opinionated, strong individuals, and rarely do they think the same. And it takes us a while sometimes to get out of the room (laughs) with a decision, but I think that's what points us in the right direction towards our true north is because we have that diversity of thought. So to your point, it really intersects recently with all of the efforts around DEI, in my opinion, that, that just makes us stronger. So thank you for being such a strong p- part of that. Thank you. So Judy, with regard to diversity, where do you see us making progress as an industry and where do you think we need to continue to focus our resources? Yes, we have made progress. But imagine this, you're starting a swimming class. It's the first day and you're a beginner and they accidentally send you over to the advanced class who's swimming in the deep end and they tell you to jump in. That's pretty scary, right? That's what it was like when I first got in the industry. I would go to meetings with 300 advisors. There might be 15 women in the room and I would be the only black person in the room. I felt very isolated. I didn't know if I was going to be received. Some of the guys wouldn't talk to me. They'd walk past me. Uh, And some people would. But it was just a, a horrible feeling. So I always had to put in the extra effort and the extra energy to fit in. You know, I it wasn't a natural fit for me. I had to fit in with everybody else. So those kind of things were, you know, pretty stressful. So when I say it's gotten better, yes, I think it has. I think the industry has gotten away from that sink or swim mentality, and they've put some programs in place where they're mentoring programs for new advisors, which are really helpful. But we need to do some more work in this area as well. We also need internal advocates. We need people that will speak for some of the minorities um, in the company and be their advocate to say, you know, here's an opportunity, let's give it to this person or let's give it to that person so that the opportunities are being shared. We know that there are opportunities, but sometimes they don't always get to other people and minorities in general um, because they don't have an advocate in the room. They don't have anybody speaking for them in the room. So those kind of things, I think we can make improvement in um, in our industry. So, you know, I think... um, you know, they talk about having a mentor that's in the room for you that has no other agenda but your well-being. And so that would make a huge difference if we had more advocates like that or sponsors like that within our industry, within the companies that we work for. So and I'm not talking about just on the advisor level all the way up, you know. So, yes, we have made progress, but there's still a lot more work to do. That's great. So we are also celebrating Black History Month with a special episode of Cambridge Stronger. Do you do anything special to recognize this month in your firm or within your community that you would like to share with the listeners? Well, you know, we recognize it all year long, you know, and my team is very diverse. We have uh, women, we have men, we have black and we have white. Um, we are, So it's a very diverse team. And so uh, really, I don't do anything extra. Uh, what I might do is I there seem to be more articles that are printed around that time of the year or this time of the year. So what I usually do will spend that time educating myself and just reading more of the articles and the things that are coming out. They're talking about 
trends in the African-American community. And also when during Women's History Month, I read there tend to be a lot of articles around that time. And so I spend those times really to educate myself so I can grow my business. <laughs> yes, I do. Oh, absolutely. That's the educator in you coming out again. Do you ever share those with your clients? Do you find? Yes, I do. How do you do that? Do you do it through social media? What's your most successful communication strategy? Well, Amy, I'm not sure it's the most successful. It's the one that I know how to do now. And that's email. But I am looking at this year going into trying to do videos. So that'll be my new adventure, my stretch. <laughs> I think you'll be fantastic at it. You're doing a great job right now on this podcast for sure. And um, I think that uh, your clients would get a lot of benefit from seeing a video, maybe as a supplement to an email because the content right. might be different. One area of focus that you mentioned that you have for your clients is transitioning lifestyle management. So what mm -hmm. does that mean? And what advice do you offer those going through big life transitions? Well, when you're going through uh, life transitions, you know, there we're always, there's always change going on in everybody's life and constant change, you know, death, caregiving, relocate, whatever, it's constant change. And so what we do is we try to anticipate what the clients will, what changes or financial decisions they'll have to make as they go through those changes and try to prepare them for it. And then sometimes we're on the responding side. It's happened. So how do we get through it? So we really work through, um, so because people really want to have a better life with their money. Okay. They just, they want to enjoy their money. They worked hard. Um, and so they want things, um, even when they're bumps in the roads, like transitions and change, they still want to be able to make good sound decisions so that they can recover fast and enjoy their life and the lifestyle that they, they've dreamed of. So one of the transitioning um, decisions that they have to make, or we help them stay on track with is remembering their core values, because that that is so key. When life transitions happen, sometimes we get distracted and we get off track and we lose our core values or we lose a focus on that. And so that's what we really do is try to bring them back to that. And so what we've done is we've expanded our financial planning uh, department. And so we've brought on more people so that we can really dig, dig deep into those transitions that people have to make. What if, or maybe you do this at the beginning of your client relationship, but what if they haven't formally written down or constructed their core values? Do you get involved in that? Or do you find sometimes you, as you said, you want to bring them back to their core values, but you ask the question, what are your core values? And they don't answer quickly. Do you have a way, a method of helping them figure out what those core values are? When they first come to us as a client, we sit down and we spend a lot of time just talking to them. Uh, we don't, you know, we look at their statements eventually, and that's really you know, they can bring them, we'll look at them kind of briefly. But that first meeting, the only thing we want to know is what do you care about? What makes you happy? And what do you think you want to do with your life? And so when things, when the transitions happen, we already know, we already know where the focus is because when they're their happy moment and their uh, planning moment, they gave us all that information already. So we just try to steer them back to that as they go through the transitions or we make adjustments if we need tweaks to it, if we need to. 
But our first meeting is spent on what do you, who are you? What do you want? And what do you value? Change can be difficult. Usually it is for almost everyone. And obviously transition equates to change. Are there situations where the clients are so maybe emotional around the transition that's happening or um, intimidated by the change that's occurring in their lives that you have to have difficult conversations with them and when you're reminding them of what their core values were when they came in and how does that process work? How does that play out? Well, you know, that's always a very sensitive time. And, uh, you know, so you have to be um, very careful how you do it, but you try to, so for example, if you have a death of a spouse, those are the real sensitive because you don't want to push the person too fast, but there's some decisions they have to make and they have to make them fast. And so those are always the more challenging ones because they are so sensitive and you don't want to cause any more emo emotional trauma to the person than they've already gone through. But what we do is we sit down. Most of our clients will tell you they trust us. That's why they're still with us. So they know that we're leading them down the path or we're asking questions to help them, not just to hinder them or try to see if we can get more money from them. We're there to help and they know and they trust us and they tell us that all the time. Yeah, I can imagine those are the very difficult times, perhaps a little bit like financial professionals we guide them as best we can to prepare a lot of that detail before the event so that there's only a couple of things that have to be dealt with at the moment where you're grieving. And I assume ideally it would be that way with clients as well. Exactly. And a lot of times we know what the spouse, if it's, let's say, a death of, we know what, how the spouse felt about certain things and what he felt was important. So we can help guide them based on that. Well, you know, Jim always said it was important to that you become, have a nice house or that you pay off the house and, uh, or that you move at this point. And so we can kind of refresh their memory and remind them of what the uh, person, the deceased person wanted for them. Do you have a, is that a CRM uh, tool that you use to keep track of those types of things? Or do you have a formal process that you use to put those kind of, that kind of information? I'm sure you have a brilliant memory, but... <laughs> I would like to think I do, but no. Uh, yes, we use a CRM. We keep track of it. And we all put the information in. So, And then we all email. If somebody is sick, we all, you know, the team, oh, I talked to so-and-so and um, she's going to, going to have surgery next week. So we all get an email so that we know if we talk to that person that they've gone, they're going in for surgery or, you know, we, we send them a note or something. But everyone on the team gets an email about where our clients are when they're going through life events. Great idea. So that whoever they contact when they're calling in has that knowledge. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Judy, you mentioned earlier that one of the issues potentially in the African-American community is that you want to care for family members, all different shapes and sizes of family members. And I'm intrigued. I just want to dig a little deeper. One of the things that you said is sometimes your conversations have to go along the route of 
you can help your child, but only up to this point because it'll have negative consequences to you, meaning you don't have enough money to support your adult <laughs> child for their entire life. Is right. what I heard. Um, that's not how you say it, I'm sure. Um, but how do those conversations go? And it, you can use an entirely different example. It doesn't have to be a child. But does that come back down to that trust you were just describing as well when you have to share it with Maybe you put it down on paper or try to help them understand what might negatively impact them if they were to continue doing what they're doing. Are those the, are those the types of conversations you would have with them in that potential moment? Well, you know, it depends on who it is because, um, and when I say that is depends on the situation with the child. Is it a child that has special needs? Because we have quite a few of those clients. Um, is it, uh, are you taking care of a parent? Are you, you know, um, and some children are take, I mean, children, when I say 20, I'm talking 20, 30 year olds are helping subsidize parents. So it really depends on where they are and what their situation is. But what we do is we sit down and we run, we do a lot of cash flow analysis, a lot. That's really drives our conversations on most things. We're we're not, we always, you know, we're not gonna say, oh, well, we think blah, blah, blah. If this happens, this happens. We're like, let, let us show you how this looks. And when you put it on paper, they can see for themselves where they're headed if we keep down this track. So it's not that we're gonna sometimes tell, tell do it because sometimes they're the high earner in the family and they have to be the one to do it. So we don't say don't do it, but we say, okay, here's where you can be within reason, within, without going over your limit, you know, without impacting your retirement, without impacting your travel schedule or whatever. So we make recommendations based on that. And, um, and those seem to be, you know, when we show them the numbers, the numbers speak for themselves. That's a great answer. And that's really what I was driving for, for the listeners to some extent, because I think having difficult conversations is just something that financial professionals have to get better at if they're really going to be effective, at least in our model, in that comprehensive life management or however you want to refer to it. And what you just described to me, at least what I heard was a way to have that difficult conversation is to give them choices and make sure that you're painting the picture of what the consequences are to certain decisions. So let's talk about outside the work environment, Judy. How do you spend your free time? Well, I love to cook. Cooking relaxes me. That's my therapy. <laughs> and I, international travel is a big thing for me. I love traveling. Every year I go out of the country. And this year I'm headed to Egypt and Italy. And so I, I, I'm just fascinated with other cultures. That's just, you know, me. And so every year I, I make sure I, I leave the soil, U.S. soil to see what's going on in other parts of the world and see how they think and what they're doing. And I also love outdoors activities. I love hiking and swimming and gardening. And I, you know, just love to have fun. That sounds fabulous. So on the international travel side um, so far, it sounds like you're going to continue doing that for a while. What is what has been your favorite place that you've gone so far and and why? Morocco. I just loved it. The colors, the clothing, the um the terrain. I mean, everything about it was just fabulous to me. You know, it was it was beautiful. It was um very peaceful. And um, it, so that was by far my favorite place so far. What was the culture like there? 
it very peaceful. You know, they pray five times a day. And so while we were there, they had some mass shootings here. And so we're like, maybe in the U.S. we need to be praying five times a day. You know? Something. <laughs> something, you know, something. Um, but it, it was just a peacefulness and also an inclusiveness. And what I mean by that is when we walked down the street, it was not a big deal. I mean, people didn't um, they didn't pay that much attention to us because we were just a person walking down the street, just like everybody else. And you had people from all over the world there, you know, there were Canadians, there were South Africans, there were, I mean, people from Europe and it was such a, you know, that to me was a melting pot, but it was a very comfortable melting pot because you didn't feel like you were different, you know, um, it was it was wonderful. Something we could learn from, it sounds like, that's for sure. Well, thank yes. you. Thank you for sharing. One of the reasons I like that question so much is it's just important, I think, to anyone, often younger people thinking about getting into our business, but even second careers, because we know those are important too and happen more frequently than you would think, to know that we aren't all just workaholics and we do have a life outside of our work. <laughs> Yes, we have to. If you don't get away, um, you burn out. So in order to keep the pace that we have to go at, um, you have to step away. You have to. Well said. I think many people could learn from that. So Judy, thank you for joining me today on Cambridge Stronger. You are a great example of Cambridge Stronger for sure. And I especially, again, want to thank you for your contributions to our DE&I efforts. Um, you help us raise the bar each and every time you contribute. And I think the committee's done some really great things. So I appreciate you significantly. Well, thank you again. It's been fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for caring. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at cambridgestronger.com. That's cambridgestronger.com.